As you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 20. We've been marching through the book of Acts, and we're getting to a really, really unique place in the book of Acts. It's kind of a turning point in the book of Acts. Paul's ministry has been going kind of full force up to this point, but as we reach Acts 20, we see a little bit of a shift happening, not only in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, but we see a shift happening even in the heart of the Apostle Paul. See, Paul is seeing that his ministry is winding down. He's seeing the, the end of the road. He's seeing the finish line. And so there's so much that are, that's happening in his heart as he thinks about the church. And he thinks specifically in this context about leaving a church that he has spent much time pouring into, the church in the city called Ephesus. And Paul wants to speak from his heart to the leaders of this church who he gathers to himself and he wants to pour his heart into them just one more time before he leaves them never to see their face again on this earth and in this life. There is a sweetness to the tone of Paul's farewell speech. It's a stirring reminder of what is important to the, the Apostle Paul, what his heart cry is for the church of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we read this now, we would take it for what it is, just that, the heart cry of the Apostle Paul for the church of Jesus Christ. Beginning at verse 13, giving us a little bit of the context as Paul is on his journey, it says, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ." And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on a part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's farewell address to this church, specifically to the leaders of this church, but by extension to the church in Ephesus, was filled with heartfelt encouragement. He loved the church of Jesus Christ. He loved that local church in Ephesus. He had poured himself into that church so, so much. He had wrung himself out for their good and for the glory of God. And in this text, we really see the heart of Paul. He almost speaks in this kind of gentle, soft, loving tone, I believe, to these elders. This is a deeply loving, intimate moment in the life of Paul as he speaks so carefully and so pointedly into the life of these elders who are entrusted to shepherd the flock of God. And now as I was thinking through this text, I I felt like I really needed to take a a slightly different approach in in preaching this text. And so I just want to let you know up front, uh, I, I believe that We've covered so much of the content of what's happening here and what Paul is expressing to the church. This is really a summary of the content that Paul has already been giving to the church. And and there's a sense in which I really feel compelled to give you less explanation of the text this morning and more of an exhortation. I think that's the real heart of Paul here. And so rather than kind of unpacking a lot of the stuff that we've been going through and there's so much that we've already studied, I simply want to, in one sense, try to capture the pastoral tone of this letter and give you more of a pastoral encouragement, a pastoral charge, if you will. And by the way, I include myself in this charge that I want to hear this, I need to hear this, I'm with you in this. I believe that this really captures the heart of Paul in regards to what the church of Jesus Christ ought to value most, what it is that ought to be the most important things to us. Remember, this is Paul's final words. He's not going to see them again. And so he majors, I believe, by by illustration of his own life and ministry and by the content that he gives them, what is most important, what is most valuable, what ought to be celebrated and pursued for them. And so if you'll allow me, I just want to do the same thing for us this morning. I I have eight desires for you this morning. Um, Or maybe if I can change the language, I have eight charges for you. Because I think that takes it to a different place. This is certainly my desire for you as the church. And and I feel in a sense the way Paul did in, in one small sense. You know, Paul had been with this church for three years. He had poured his life into them. He had seen them birthed from nothing and grown into something. And as he leaves them, his heart is so for them. He loves them so deeply. He just wants them to excel in the things of the Lord. And, and I just, as I, I reflected on this passage this week, I really believe the Lord just kind of caused in me this, this really intentional time of reflection to think back over the last seven years of life in this church. And I can just tell you, it was a really meaningful time in God's word this week and studying the passage this week. And God just caused me to think back over 
the way that this church has come into being by His grace and by His power. But in se- listen, in seven years, we have seen God do an amazing thing in the life of this church. We have spent years pursuing Jesus Christ together. Some of you are newer than others. Some of you have been here since the very beginning, but along the way, those who have come on board and those who have gone out from amongst us, we've seen God do such an incredible thing here as we pursue Jesus Christ. And I, I want you to hear the word of God this morning and the charge that I gave you this morning, not simply to just take it in and think about it. I really, really pray and hope that we can embrace these things, that there would be a sense, and when we, we hear these charges together, we are saying, yes, I need this. I need to be reminded of this. I need to embrace this. I need to be after this by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We need to be completely committed to doing what God has called us to do and to focus on what God says is most important. And so in light of that, I, I want to begin with this point, I charge you, church, to be a relationally committed church. I charge you to be a relationally committed church. I, I charge you to plunge yourselves into the challenging yet glorious task of loving each other for the long haul, of getting into each other's lives, of doing life together. Paul really models this for us. It's less by the the command that he gives them or the charge that he gives them. And and here in this point, it's more by the example that he gives them. Paul here begins in verse 18, 17 and 18. Again, the, the beginning verses more give us the context and remind us that Paul is trying to make it to Jerusalem. But on his way, he stops in this place called Miletus. And rather than venturing into the city of Ephesus, would have been quite a journey. He would have stayed a lot longer there. He asked the elders to come to him, and they graciously respond to hear his final farewell message to them. Verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come. And when they had come, here's what he says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He begins, listen, the exhortation or the encouragement to the elders of the church in Ephesus by reminding them of the deep and meaningful relationship that he had established with them. You see, everything that he says to them flows from this platform. He has not only been commissioned by God as an apostle, but he has worked so tirelessly among them. They have seen his life. He has poured himself into them so faithfully. There is a relational bond here that creates greater impact at the words that he is going to share to them. They know Paul loves them. They've watched his life. They've watched him give himself wholly to the work of the Lord and for their good and their upbuilding. They've seen him, as verse 19 says, serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. They've seen him go through the trials and the plots against his life. I love this because Paul is revealing to them there that he had not held anything back from them. He says, you know me, we we did this together. And it's a great reminder that in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to break down the walls of autonomy and individualism, and we need to open the doors of community and relationship, something that is so often and goes against the, or it's difficult, excuse me, it goes against the grain of our society. 
Paul models what it is to do life with other believers. In fact, if you look at verse 38, it kind of bookends this entire passage. The relationship that exists between these believers is so powerful. It's so intimate and precious. He says, being sorrowful, here's what they they said. They were sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not, look at this, look at this, look at the intimacy in this language, that they would not see his face again. I mean, their hearts are broken as Paul is leaving them. Not because he was just such a profound communicator of God's word, but because they loved him and he loved them and they knew it and they had gone through so much in this life together. This shows us, listen, a picture of genuine affection and friendship that must be present in the body of Christ. It shows a depth of relationship and a commitment to one another that must be embraced in the body of Christ. And by the way, I know, I know that that is so much easier said than done, isn't it? To experience these kind of relationships in the body of Christ is easier said than done. I know that many of you in this place have faced incredible difficulties, pain, hardships, drama, wounds, even within the context of the local church. Just so you are aware, so have I. But even though we may experience things that are painful in the context of relationships, even in the church, listen, they never get you out of the commandment that God has given you to love one another. Never do they get you out of the place that God calls you to as a follower of Christ, to love one another, to give yourself to one another for their good. This is not, when you look at scripture, it's not a suggestion, it's not simply a good idea that God says maybe you should think about doing. This is something that God commands us to pursue. It is a requirement of the church to love one another. And by the way, it is one of the greatest privileges and blessings to know the love of the body of Christ. It is a privilege that you and I get to commit ourselves to one another. It is a privilege that you and I get to love each other through the hard times and the good times. And listen, one of the greatest realities is that in so doing that, in embracing this kind of loving relationship, what we are doing is we are reflecting the love of God to the watching world. We are becoming for the world a picture of what they so desperately crave and long for, but what cannot be experienced apart from the working of God in their lives. That's what our world needs to see. I was reminded as I, I read through this and thinking about the kind of relationships, the beauty of these, these relationships, the kind of love that exists of, of our time that we spent working through the Gospel of John a couple of years ago. Seeing regularly, time and time again in that Gospel, Christ and his commitment for us. His, his willingness to lay down his life for his friends. His commitment to us then forms and motivates our commitment to love and commit to one another. It's Jesus Christ, it's seeing what he has done for us that enables us to have the kind of loving relationships that he calls us to. You know, John, when he writes later on in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he, he talks so often about the kind of love that is to exist, the kind of commitment that is to be present in the body of Christ amongst one another. And so I just want to show you some passages. Turn in your Bible, just keep your finger in Acts 20 and turn to 1 John. And there's so many verses that we can look at. I just want to hit them quickly, but I, I hope you get the sense of what relationships are supposed to look like in the body, the kind of love that must be present. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes this. He says, see 
what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In verse 11, he says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In verse 23, he says, and this is the, his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And in verse 21, he says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Church, Love one another by committing to one another. Love one another by saying, I'm gonna be with you in this for the long haul. We're gonna go through thick and thin and I'm gonna be in this for your good. Listen, relationships, I know this to be true. Relationships are messy, amen? All right, some of you know. But listen, they are, they are messy, but they are a relation, they are, it's a mess worth making. It is completely worth it. God has said, I'm bringing you and all of your messiness into a body of other people and all of their messiness, and I'm calling you to be united in your common love for me and then to love one another faithfully. You say, this is hard. How do I love other people who hurt me? How do I love other people who are, who are not like me? They're so different. They're so challenging. They're so frustrating. How do I love people like that? Listen, God has been teaching me this time and time again. It's very simple. It's such a simple principle. If you grab this, you'll be able to love anybody in the body of Christ. Here it is. Ready? Jesus Christ loves his church, and so should you. Jesus loves you in all of your mess. Jesus saved you in all of your mess, in all of your failures, in all the muck of your life, and in all the warts and the blemishes, everything that is unlovely about you, Jesus Christ looked at you and he said, I love you so much, I will die for you. That is a picture of how we are to love one another in the body of Christ. Church, listen, if you haven't got yourself involved in community, if you're sitting on the fringes of, of community and relationship life in the church, can I, can I give you that gentle but firm push over the edge. It's time for you to get involved in relationship. It's time for you to get into a small group and do life with one another. Hash things out. Wrestle through the issues of life. It's within the context of relationship then that I charge you secondly, listen, to be a personally transparent church. You can't be a relationally committed church, not in the truest sense, if you are not embracing this reality that you must also be a personally transparent church. In other words, think of it like this. We can't experience the depth of relationship and the power of relationship and fellowship if we're only willing to experience superficial relationship and friendship. And we need to work hard at growing in this. I want you to notice, I don't know if you caught this, but throughout this entire passage, beginning in verse nine, serving the Lord with all humility, notice this word, he says it often, and with tears. Did you catch that? Paul, regularly, he comes back to it, verse 31, he says he admonished people night and day with tears. And you, just, you have to see the, the, the vulnerability, the transparency, the raw emotion of the apostle Paul as he ministers to people. I think this is a powerful reminder. Verse 34 tells us that you yourselves to know how I was among you, how these hands ministered to you, how I cared for others. 
In appealing to how they knew him, Paul is appealing to the fact that they really did know him. They knew his struggles. They knew the trials. They knew the the pain that he was experiencing. They saw it all unfolding before their very eyes. He didn't hide himself from anybody else. He invited people into the process of spiritual growth alongside him. I want you so desperately as a church to learn what it means to live in real, raw, authentic community. And part of that is you learning to become more transparent. It is us embracing this as a culture in the life of our church. Here's the truth. Isn't this a reality in your life? All of us are really good at controlling what other people think about us. Isn't that true? We're great at controlling what everybody sees about us. We love to present the best picture of us, and if we're honest, it's generally speaking, not usually the most accurate picture of us. Isn't that true? Like that's the, we live in in the social media culture that is helping us prop up a false picture of who we really are, of hiding who we really are, of presenting a veneer of what we want people to think about us. So every one of us has, you know, the Instagram version of us, and then we have Monday. And the two usually don't look the same. Kind of a blend of the two, sure. In my experience in the life of the church, here's what I've seen happen. Sadly, there are some people who refuse to commit to other people and to live in community and to express any kind of vulnerability and transparency. And they live in this kind of a self-induced prison of isolation. And what it does, what they think is helping them only leads to their spiritual decline. There are some people who, who resist it so much, they don't want anybody to come into their life. They, they want to conceal parts of their life from other people so desperately that they never really experience any fruitful, you know, fulfilling relationships in their life. They, they hop from church to church, from relationship to relationship. They just, you know, the second somebody gets a little bit too close, you know, pressing in a little too tightly, they begin to resist and withdraw, and that's it, I'm out of here. Church, may this never be said about us in this place. The church should be an incubator for authenticity. Sadly, in our culture, the church is often the opposite of that. It is an incubator for inauthenticity. It is an incubator really for deception, for covering up who we really are. The church is always meant by God to be a place where the mask comes off, where we share our struggles with one another and we share in the struggles of others. The church is meant to be a place where we open ourselves up for the loving care of others, for the loving instruction and correction from others. You know, since we launched this church, I can just tell you that this has always been the desire from us as a leadership, it was always the goal to to not get together and simply play church. We wanted no part of that concept. We want no part of that cultural Christianity where we all just get together and we play church and pretend like everything's okay. We we reject that, we resist that with everything we have. We, We want a transparent place where we're real with one another, where we do life with one another. That's always been our desire. Even, listen, even if we've rarely ever achieved it, 
It has been our sincerest desire to build a community that is transparent. I, I embrace and I understand, listen, that we are far, we are far from perfect in this area, but from day one, we have refused to simply play church. We've always wanted to create an environment where we can be real about our sin and we can confess our sin to one another. We can pray for one another. We've always wanted to create a healthy environment where if there's relational friction and tension and reconciliation needed, where that can take place with gladness and joy. We try to provide that regularly because we so desperately need that and we see that being in so, so in line with the scriptures. We always wanted to create a, an environment where we don't pretend to be what we are but instead we can be honest about who we are and we can strive to be who God wants us to be. Some of you are saying, how is this possible? How is it possible to have this kind of a transparent environment? How do I do this? Listen, the only reason we can stand here together is, is one simple reason. The only reason that we can get together and we can even function like this with this kind of depth and intimacy in our relationships, one word, grace. Grace, that's the only reason because we know because of grace who we truly are in Jesus Christ, Amen. I mean, don't we know that when we look at ourselves in light of God's grace, we are unworthy. All of us have blemishes and spots and past and baggage and continual sin in our lives. Don't we know that the only reason that we exist in the body of Christ is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's it. None of us earned a spot here. None of us had to clean ourselves up to get right with God. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. God saves us in our brokenness, and then he wants to make us in community into something more beautiful and precious. And so, because of grace, which I need, by the way, desperately, every day, you need it, it is so central to creating a vulnerable community. Because of grace, we can admit who we really are. And can I, can I just tell you that I read through this passage this week, and time and time again, I was so convicted. I, I, <laughs> Paul says all kinds of things. Paul's, Paul's an example of what faithful ministry looks like. And so when you read Paul as a pastor or as a servant of God, you look at Paul and you're like, how did you do that, Paul? Like, like Paul, as he lists himself, I mean, did you, catch, did you catch what he says there? He talks about how he poured himself out night and day. He didn't cease to teach with tears. He's going from house to house. I mean, he gave everything to the life of the church. He tells him that he never coveted anyone's silver, gold, or apparel. I mean, some of you dress pretty nice. I've looked at this passage this week, and you know what I keep being reminded of? Like, man, Paul just killed it in ministry. Like, he crushed it. He just, he just, he did ministry so, so well. And when I looked at Paul in my own life, here's all I could think about. It made me think of all my personal shortcomings. I'm looking at Paul going, man, Paul, man, I look, I look like I'm so not worthy of this, which I'm not, by the grace of God, I'm here I look at all my personal shortcomings, all I can see is the times where I didn't make the right decision, I can see all the times where I didn't handle something the right way, I can see the times where I responded poorly in my emotion, I can see the times where I maybe reacted and got defensive to something. And all I can do, I was reminded this week, I was reminded by somebody that when we see our shortcomings, that's okay because that just gives the, an opportunity for the grace of God to shine brighter. And look, Paul wasn't perfect either. 
And I'm not trying to sit here and have a pity party. I'm thankful for the grace of God because I look at my shortcomings and failures. You know what? Paul did the same thing. You know, Paul had no problem talking about his past life. You know, you know Paul was a murderer of Christians. He imprisoned Christians. He talked about how self-righteous he was. He talked about how he tried to earn the grace and favor of God. Just read Philippians 3. It's his testimony. And by the way, we have it recorded in Acts chapter 9 for all the world to know how wicked and despicable Paul was. And you know what Paul says? Yeah, that's who I was. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And all of my shortcomings were just an opportunity for the grace of God to be magnified and shone brightly out around. You know, I wonder if you'd see your inadequacies and your failures and you would see that the grace of God can shine bright. That is what enables us to be transparent. It is God's grace that has embraced us. It is God's grace that is changing us. And grace, by the way, because we know that grace in our failures, it doesn't mean it's an excuse for a lack of growth. Some people want to say, well, I don't need to change. God's gracious. He's, he's going to change me. God doesn't want you to stay how you are. He wants to change you. Grace isn't an excuse for a lack of growth. It is a means for experiencing greater growth. Paul holds up humility in this passage in such a precious way in verse 19. With all humility, he says, with tears and with trials, you know how I serve the Lord among you. You know how I care for you. You know who I am. Some of you are thinking, well, Ian, that's a really great desire, but I just don't see that here at Harvest Durham. I've been in small groups. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. I'm just not seeing the kind of transparency you're asking for or you think the Scripture is calling us to. And to you, I would simply say, well, okay, friend, listen, show us. Show us. I mean that sincerely. You take the first step. You show us what transparency looks like. You model it. Go before us. Help us learn from your life. The failures of others cannot be an excuse to abandon the truth of what God calls us to. And all of us, for honest, we failed in many ways, including this way. We want to foster here personal transparency, and we want to do real life together. We grow in this by the way, with the truth. The truth becomes the soil in which transparency grows. The more we hear the truth, the more we submit ourselves to the truth of God's word, the more our hearts are softened and pliable and molded into the kind of followers of Christ that God wants us to be. So church, thirdly, I charge you to be a biblically faithful church. Be a biblically faithful church. I, I want you so desperately to cling to the word of God and to never stray. I want you to wrap your arms so tightly around the word of God. I want the word of God to so saturate your heart and your mind. I want it to flow through you, in you, and from you. I want you to be thinking about things that are above, not on things that are below. I want your life to be so dominated by the truths of God's word, by the revelation of himself, that everybody around you knows there's something different about you. You know, your reputation is an important thing. Every one of us has a reputation. You realize that, right? You have a reputation amongst those who know you most. I was reminded of this. We had the men's conference 
Harvest Men's Conference, Free Indeed, in Oakville. And I'm always struck by this, the reputation that people have, because anytime a guest speaker gets up at one of these conferences, it's inevitable. Um, somebody who knows them well gets up before them and tells you a little bit about this individual. I mean, and really what they're saying is, you want to know what kind of a reputation this person has? This, this man or this woman has a reputation uh, for being so humble, so godly, I mean, knowledgeable in the word, a, a profound expositor of the truth, you know, just some of the things that we heard yesterday. Your reputation is what other people think about you and what ultimately they believe about you. It's how they define you. And you can have a reputation for good things and bad things. You get, you get that, right? You can have a reputation for being generous or stingy, for being humble or proud, for being kind or rude, for being selfless or selfish, just to name a few. And so let me ask you, maybe as you're thinking about this, what would somebody say about you? What would somebody say about our church? I, I want our church to have a reputation for many things, but right around the top of that list, I want our church to have a reputation for being biblically faithful. To be known today, to be known two years from now, to be known 10 years from now, to be known if the Lord allows 50 years from now that people would look at Harvest Durham and they would say, that, that is a picture of a biblically faithful church. Those people in there, they love the word of God. They believe the word of God. They submit to the word of God and they declare the word of God. I want us to be known for a church who stays true to the word of God, a church that has not fallen for cheap gimmicks and cultural fads, but has clung to the trustworthy word as taught. I want you to know your church and to believe that your church is a place where you will come and be fed. I hope that every person in here would say about our church that whoever is preaching from the front, wherever ministry they're in, wherever they go in this church, they know one thing. They are guaranteed that they are going to hear the word of God taught faithfully, clearly, powerfully, and they are going to be well fed by the word of God, nourished and strengthened, built up, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when we are nourished by the word and when we cherish the word, we will be sanctified and matured by the word. And this is the heart of the apostle Paul in verse 20. Look at what he says. He says, you know, remember this is all in the appeal of how they know. You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 27, look what he says. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't leave anything out. I didn't shrink back from giving you what you needed to hear, what you needed to know for your own personal spiritual growth. Look at verse 32. I love it. This is so sweet. He says, now I commend you to God and to, I love this about the word of God, the word of his grace. That's what this book is right here. This is the grace of God for you and me which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, made holy. This is what God is using to make us a holy people. And for us, church, that simply means, listen, don't ever abandon the word of God. Don't ever let anything take its place. Don't ever change the message and preach something according to your own likes or dislikes. 
you must know, you must believe, and you must choose to declare the truth of God's word. That is the only way. This book right here is the only way you know God. It's the only way you truly know yourself. It's the only way you can understand your God-given purpose and design. It's the only way you can understand the hope that you can have in Jesus Christ. And you know, we, we have tried to model this here in this church, that, that you would know that every time you came into this church, you would need your Bible, right? That you would open your Bible, that you would read your Bible, study your Bible, and be challenged to actually apply your Bible. That's a real novel concept, isn't it? That has been our desire from the very beginning, that this book is the thing that drives and fuels and changes and transforms you. We want to be this kind of scripture-saturated community. That's what I want for you. That's what I desperately want for you. I've always wanted this from the very moment we, we decided we, we, we were being called by God to plant a church and, and not sure what to expect. I can tell you this. We always believed that God would bless his word. We always wanted to be a church in the community that God's word would go out and feed people and change people. You know, it's so interesting. Paul in verse 26, says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because of how he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. He had fed them so well. He had given them so much meat of the word of God. He had shepherded them in the truth of the word of God that he could actually say, I am innocent of your blood. That's another way of Paul saying, look, I've done my part. Now you go and do yours. He preached to them the whole counsel of God. I mean, just think of the breadth of everything he taught them over the course of three years. He declared everything they needed to know about life and godliness. What God says of all of life, the great doctrines of creation and fall and redemption and restoration, the truth about God's holiness and man's sinfulness, what God has done about it in the cross of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of heaven and hell and final judgment, love, justice, wrath and mercy, new life, new creation, the kingdom of God was proclaimed don't hold back on any teaching and believing every once in a while I go back through in my mind the books of the Bible that we have had the privilege of, of teaching through since we started almost seven years ago anybody here when, when we first started and, and, and had to um, suffer through the preaching of Colossians anybody here that tells you something only a few here still from that that was bad. I wouldn't have sat through that. It's amazing to think where we've come from in just seven years. We've gone through the book of Colossians. We went through the book of Malachi. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. We went through the book of Titus. We've talked through the book of James. We've talked through First and Second Samuel. We've gone through the Gospel of John. We've been through Jonah, countless Psalms. We've been through the book of Acts. We're still in the book of Acts. And that is such a small, look, 66 books of the Bible. There's only a, a handful there. Church, we have a whole lot more ahead of us, amen? We got a whole lot more to get through. We got a whole lot more that God wants us to feast upon, that God wants to use to change and transform us. And I'm praying by the grace of God that he allows us to continue to dive deeper and deeper into the word of God. It is what builds us up. It is what sanctifies us. 
But you know what's a really scary reality? It is possible to be a biblically faithful church, but to somehow be subtly missing the mark. In fact, the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, John himself praises the church because they were sound in their doctrine. They had been biblically faithful, and yet they had lost their first love. And so church, I charge you fourthly to be a gospel-centered church. I charge you, church, to make sure that Jesus Christ is at the center of all that you do, that He is the one that you love so deeply, that the reason we're so biblically faithful is because we believe so clearly that the Scriptures are teaching us about Jesus Christ, that He is the fulfillment of Scripture itself. Paul, in verse 21, wants to make it very clear. Look at this. He said that in his teaching, Here's what was always present. He was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was preaching that there could be forgiveness of sins because Jesus died in our place. He taught that if you have faith, you can be saved. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, you could have his perfect life. The Bible is a story that centers on Jesus. He is Scripture's greatest theme. He is the Word of God in flesh come into this world to fulfill all the promises of God for us. He came into this world to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf, to rise on our behalf, and currently right now, He is interceding on our behalf. The whole Bible points to Him. He is the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. He is the greatest sacrifice. He is the bread of life, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the true and only way to God. So to preach the word is ultimately to preach and herald Jesus Christ. Jesus in John chapter five says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says it's all about me. It's always been about me. Church, I charge you to always point to Jesus, the one true savior of the world, the redeemer of mankind, the true hero of the story. It is only because of Christ that we can follow the word of truth And we must hold him out as the only one who saves from sin, death, and hell. I want to give my life to seeing lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I look around this room and all I can think, I can think of testimony after testimony. I can see people in this room who I I saw broken in their sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. I can see, listen, and those that I haven't seen, every single one of you, you look around this room, this room is filled with miracles of new life in Jesus Christ. Every one of our testimonies, regardless of how bad or wicked you were, the kind of lifestyle you lived or didn't live, every one of our salvation stories is a story of the grace of God, and it is an absolute miracle. I want to see more. I want to see more gospel transformation. I want to see God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, rescue and redeem more lost sinners. I want to see God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, break more hardened rebels. I want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ take some of us in here who are followers of Jesus Christ and continue to soften us and mold us and transform us more and more into the image of our Savior. I want to see him do it in you. I want to see him do it in me. And so I charge you, church, to be a gospel-centered church. And Paul knew that this couldn't be done in his own strength and his own power. And 
we must embrace this too, so I charge you next to be a spirit-led church. I wonder if you notice that Paul refers explicitly to the compelling guidance of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that in verse 22 and 23? He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. The Holy Spirit's activity was also seen in attributing or appointing, excuse me, the leaders, even in this church in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit was present in the commissioning of Paul on his first missionary journey when the leaders rallied around and laid hands on Paul, and they all believed the Spirit of God was calling him to this ministry. The Spirit of God was always leading and directing and guiding Paul. He was so in tune with the Spirit of God. Here's why. He was not ruled by the desires of his flesh and the desires of the world. He was ruled by the desires of the Spirit of God that lived within him. He had yielded himself to the Spirit in his life. He had given up control of his life. He he kicked himself off the throne of his heart. He let God rule and reign, and now the Spirit would work and move so powerfully to lead and direct, to convict, comfort, encourage, to change and transform. We have seen the Spirit of God lead in the life of this church all over the place. I can remember the very first meetings we had. I remember meeting with a group of 15 you know, to 20 people calling out to the Lord saying, you know, we gather together. And our first meetings, by the way, they weren't Bible studies. They were prayer meetings. We knew we had nothing in ourselves. We knew that if there was going to be a church in this area that was going to do anything for the kingdom of God and to see God use it mightily, it must not be of our own power and our own strength. It had to be something that he was in, and he had to make it happen. He had to work in power and in might. He had to work in our weakness to show how great and mighty he was. From the very beginning, I remember, I vividly remember being on my face with other groups of individuals, praying, God, bring people, bring other people who love you, who love the church, who want to see the gospel go forward. God, build this thing, and we would see week after week, people coming on board, signing up. Yes, I love this. I want to be a part of what God's doing in this place. I remember praying for provision. God, would you meet our financial needs? And from the very first days, God provided abundantly I remember praying for a place to worship. I remember walking, uh, going to different, visit different areas and standing outside with groups of people praying, God, would you give us this place to meet in? Would you give us this place to meet in? And by the grace of God, here we are. I I can tell you testimony after testimony of how the Spirit of God has so worked in such amazing ways to lead us, to guide us, to provide us, to put us exactly where he wants us to be. It hasn't always been easy, and oftentimes our own fleshly desires have gotten in the way. You know, it's so easy to be led, isn't it, by our own fears? It's so easy to be led by our own anxieties. It's so easy to be led by our own passions, our own appetites and desires. Do you know as a church that it would be very easy for us right now to grow complacent and apathetic? You know, kick our feet up and rest a little bit. In, in fact, I, I want to I challenge us as a church. I, I wonder if maybe some of this has settled in in a little bit of our hearts. You know, the novelty of a church plant has kind of worn off a little bit. You know, we've been here for a while. Maybe there's a tendency in our hearts to kind of look and go, you know what? We're actually doing just fine. Look, we, we've, kind of, we've kind of made it. 
we've experienced a, a quite a degree of success here. Look at the growth that we've experienced. You know what? It's time for us to maybe kick our feet up, to rest and relax. We've, we've already arrived. It's easy for us to think that we've th- figured some things out. I mean, somebody recently came to our church just in the past couple weeks from another ministry, and they wanted to come here to find out what the secret to our success was. Like, why has our church grown? Why, are, why, are we ha- why do we have, why do we, you know, this is an enigma to a lot of people. Why do we have so many younger people in the church? There's no secret to our success, okay? It's really easy. The Spirit of God has blessed a church and a people who have been dependent upon God. The Spirit of God has worked as we submit ourselves to Him and as we yield ourselves to Him, as we say, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. Your way, not my way. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want you to be glorified and magnified. And that is what the Spirit of God has blessed. Nothing else, not us, not me, that's for sure. I mean, listen, the Spirit of God is working in spite of us. Isn't that awesome news? We need to be a church that's not quenching the Spirit of God, not grieving the Spirit of God, that is yielding to the Spirit of God, more in tune with the way the Spirit of God is wanting to change us, to grow us, to respond to His working through the Word, to go where He wants us to go. And you know, sometimes when the Spirit leads us, it can take us down a path that we don't necessarily want to go. (laughs) I just can't imagine Paul he knows, he doesn't know what awaits him in any city. All he knows is what awaits him. This is what the Spirit of God has told him, that in every city, he's going to have imprisonments and afflictions. Sometimes the Christian life is really hard. In fact, let me just say this. Listen, the Christian life is impossible without the Spirit of God. The book of Acts reminds us that the Spirit empowers us and leads us and changes us to go where the Spirit leads, even when it's hard, even when it costs us. So church, I charge you to be a joyfully sacrificial church. Give yourself to the work of the ministry. Give yourself for the purposes of God. Give yourself. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here today, you need to be called first to the place of joyful, sacrificial giving of your own life. You need to see that God himself joyfully sacrificed his own son to save you and redeem you and to give you life. And then it becomes a privilege to say, Lord, I will lay down everything I I am and everything I have for the cause of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, I want you to give yourselves so radically to the purposes of God. I want, to give, I want you to give yourself so recklessly to the kingdom of God. You were made for this as followers of Christ. The church exists for this. And the sign, when you walk out the door, there's a sign, a little A-frame sign that says, Ephesians 4.12, when you come in, it says it's for the equipping of the saints. It's right here. But when you leave, the rest of the, the other half of that verse is on the side going out to give you this reminder, listen, for the work of the ministry. We get built up and equipped right here. This is the, the grace of God. But then we walk out those doors and we go live for the cause of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this again at the conference. One of the speakers um, was talking about what he would have written on his tombstone. And uh, anybody, anybody here think, think like that? Like you, you already got your tombstone planned out. This is what they're going to say about me. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's kind of weird, right? 
you know, it reminded me though, he's talking about like, you know, here's what I want my life to be defined by and you know, this statement on my tombstone. But it reminded me of the story that I've told and some of you know about a pastor who took some other pastoral staff to a cemetery on a kind of a retreat day. It's a great way to have some fun together. And he, he said, he sent them all out and he said, I want you to go, I want you to just go sit, take a pen and paper and I want you to sit and I want you to make note of something. On every one of these tombstones, just notice something. There is a beginning date and there is an end date. Look, church, listen, every one of us has a beginning date and every, every one of us will have an end date. And then he said this, he said, I, I want you to go and think about what you're gonna do with that dash in between. What is your life gonna be given to? Is your life going to matter for Jesus Christ? Between that beginning and end, what are you going to do with the time that God has given you? What are you going to do with the life that God has given you, with the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that just so strikes me. Will you begin to live more and more for the glory of God? Will you love your family in a different way? Will you share Christ with your neighbors and coworkers? I want to give my life for the purposes of God. I want to give everything I am for the purposes of God. And don't be confused. Listen, some people think that somehow to give yourself to the purposes of God means that you need to abandon your current life or your current job and and only ministry life, full-time ministry, is, is valuable to God. Can you just get that out of your mind? That is not what God believes or says. God says this. It's not about whether you're in full-time ministry paid for it. It's whether or not you have the mindset of a missionary everywhere you are. You can be a faithful follower of Christ. You can hear, well done, good and faithful servant in your current job. Like as an architect, as a garbage man, or a plumber, or an interior designer, you can be a faithful follower of Christ if you commit to living where you are for the glory of Jesus Christ. You just need to hear that. I want to live for his kingdom and not for mine or for anybody else's. I want to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness. I want to take risks for Jesus. Sacrifice with joy. Paul, listen to this. You want to talk about sacrifice? Listen to verse 24. Look at this. This is such, such an astounding description of his own perspective on himself and his life. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I I don't care what happens to me. I don't care about my own little kingdom, my own little world. All I care about is that my life is spent joyfully for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want to finish the race. I want to run hard and I want to run through the finish line. Oh God, help us, amen? Help us to be those kind of Christians who are joyfully sacrificial. You say, how, how can I give so generously of myself? How can I take these kind of risks? You know, I love what Jesus says in Luke 14. He, he calls the disciples to give a feast. And he says in this feast, invite the poor and the lame and the blind. And here's the reason he gives. Because they can do nothing for you. Like, what? Well, hold on, Jesus. I was with you with the feast part, but then... The outcasts, the broken, the hurting, invite them. I I only do stuff for people. I only scratch somebody's back if they can scratch my back. See, how can we live like this? How can this kind of characterize the sacrificial life of a believer of Jesus Christ? Well, the the next line says it all. He says, why? He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Listen, church, what we sacrifice here will come around tenfold 
when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What you give now, you need to understand this. Whatever you give now, however painful it is for you to let go of it, you need to understand you are accumulating, you are building up treasures in heaven that will never rust or be destroyed. It makes us generous, realizing that God is going to bless us tremendously. Why do you think Paul could say, you know, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison? He's like, I don't care what this world throws at me. I don't care what Satan hits me with. I will take all of the affliction in this life. I will give my own life because what I suffer here and now can't even compare to the amazing, awesome, eternal weight of glory that Jesus Christ will give to me one day. Oh, Lord, give us, give us the heavenly mindset that we need. Church, he is worth it, amen? He is worth it. Listen, I am not in the Christian life because it's easy. I'm in the Christian life because it's true. And we need to be careful because we know it's the truth, never to turn from this truth. And so, church, I charge you to be deliberately, a deliberately watchful church. In verse 28 and 31, he kind of, gives us in three senses how to be watchful. He says, pay careful attention first to yourselves. Watch yourselves. And yes, he's speaking to the elders, but you need to understand that this applies to all of us. And he says to pay attention to all the flock. Watch one another, in other words, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he says to watch out for wolves. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things or draw away the disciples after them. Church, you just need to hear the warnings embedded here. It is easy to be faithful at one time and then to stray at another. It is possible to grow dull and not even know it. It is possible to be off the tracks and not even know it. It's possible to be focused on the wrong things and not even realize it. Guard your heart. Guard your heart first. Watch over your heart and watch over one another. We desperately need to look out for one another. We need to take some ownership of the, the flock of God that he has brought us into, blood-bought people of God. We need to not give up in this church. You need to get in and get involved. Your presence in the life of this church matters. God wants you involved here, and he wants your sharpening effect on other believers Jesus is coming back. I can't, we talked about this so often. He is coming back and there is no time for the church to go to sleep. There's no time for the church to slack off. First Peter 5, 8, Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you need to understand that one of the greatest dangers in the life of the church is that there are gonna be wolves that creep in to twist and distort the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Satan wants to destroy a church that is on fire for Jesus Christ and a church that loves the truth of the word of God. Do not get complacent. Do not get comfortable. Stay on guard. Keep vigilant watch. Test everything by the word of God. Let the word of God be the plumb line for all of our lives and everything we believe and everything we do. Take it right back to the word of God. One of the greatest ways to be deliberately watchful, listen to what Paul said in Colossians 4.2. He said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Listen, church, we need to be a prayerful church, so let me charge you, be a prayerfully dependent church.
be a prayerfully dependent church. Paul ends in verse 36 in one sense after he shared his heart. He knows that none of this is possible without the power of the Spirit. He knows that none of them are going to be able to handle this on our own. And I love this about Paul. He knows where the source of strength lies. He knows where he needs to be. And it says in verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Here they are, this group of men, understanding the weight of what is required to lead the church, but the weight of what's required to be a part of the church, what God has called them to. And they fall down together on their knees, and they weep over the departure of Paul, but more than that, they cry out to God for him to do what only he can do. He must be their strength. In church, he must be our strength if we're going to accomplish anything, anything, anything of lasting eternal value for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is where the church started. This is where the church must remain. And this is where the church, let me charge you with this church. We need to excel still more in this. We are not the kind of praying church that we need to be if we're gonna experience the kind of move of God in our church and in our midst. We have to be a more prayerfully dependent church. We have to get back to the basis. We need you to be a praying people. We have to believe firmly in the power of prayer like we say we do. God's power is unleashed through prayer. And so we must be a prayerfully dependent church crying out for God to release his power amongst us. Church, I want to be a part of something that is only explainable by the grace and power of God Almighty. E.M. Bounds said that that prayer puts God's work in God's hands and keeps it there. It is weakness leaning on omnipotence. It is us in our frailty saying, God, you must show up. So church, let me invite you, pray big prayers. Pray big prayers for your own spiritual life. Pray big prayers of victory over your own personal sin. Pray big prayers for significant growth in your own holiness. Pray big prayers for your family members. Pray big prayers for the lost people in your communities and in your families and beyond. Pray big prayers for our country and the world around us. Pray big prayers because we serve a big God. I was reminded of this yesterday as well. Listen, God does not care about the size of our church. He cares about the strength of our church. Prayer reveals where we believe we find our strength. So as the worship team comes up here, I want to ask you to consider embracing these charges with me. I want to ask you to pray that God would help us to be this kind of church who is so radically transformed and changed to be the church that, as the word of God says here, isn't this, let these words sink in for a minute, the church that he obtained with his own blood. And if I could just maybe add one more as a, an exhortation to respond even now, in light of the reality that we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, church, we ought to be a passionately worshiping church. We ought to be a church that understands that we are loved by the king, called by the king, cleansed by the king, and commissioned into service of the king. We have been equipped for spirit-empowered ministry that I trust and pray will bring God maximum glory. So let us run the race set before us with endurance, and let us fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith.